you know, people, I think people generally cope with their lives but don't necessarily enjoy their lives. And as a DJ, your one of your responsibilities is to give those people a great emotional and psychological lift on a Friday night or a Saturday night and to give them an experience which is more positive and intense than anything that they get during the rest of the week and they will draw strength from that and I kind of feel that social responsibility and I feel that quite strongly. Hello, 24-hour party people. You're listening to the National Theatre Podcast. I'm Sam Sedgman, and today we are going out in public. So get your coat. The voice you heard at the start of the show was Dave Haslam. He's a DJ who's performed all over the world, but got his start in Manchester during the 1980s, when music was at the heart of a kind of cultural renaissance in that city. We're not just talking about DJs today, but we are talking about what music, art, any kind of culture, what that means for a place, whether that's a big city or a small neighbourhood, how art in public can change everything. We'll be coming back to Dave later on in the show to talk about how music shaped Manchester's identity and speaking to a busker about what street performance tells you about your neighbourhood. We'll also be speaking to the artist Jeremy Della about his nationwide artwork to commemorate the Battle of the Somme. But we're starting in London, right on the National Theatre's doorstep, where every year we put on a free outdoor festival here on the South Bank. My name is Fran Miller. I'm one of the project producers at the National Theatre and that involves me producing work in the Dorfman, in the Littleton and in other spaces across the National. But it also includes um, programming and producing the River Stage Festival, which is the National Theatre's annual outdoor festival that happens um, on the northeast corner by the Thames. And we have five weekends of outdoor performances that happen from Friday nights right through until Sundays or for the final weekend through to the bank holiday Monday. And they happen yet for five weekends throughout August. Amazing. So tell us, a lot of people won't know about the South Bank and kind of what kind of a place it is. Mm. Can you paint us a picture of what kind of atmosphere the South Bank has in the summer and how the River Stage Festival sort of fits into that? So the South Bank in the summer. It always feels like a really colourful, really fun place. And that kind of from the South Bank Centre, they have those amazing sand pits and the fountains. And it feels like a place that people gather. And as you come down towards the National, we try and also kind of create that atmosphere of places that people can come, can hang out, can see art, can experience being completely at the heart of London to show audiences or to show people that wouldn't normally come to the National Theatre what we're all about. When you're not working yep. here on the South Bank, do you like hang out on the South Bank? Do I hang out on the South Bank? I do actually. I do come here quite a lot. And actually, I used to visit the National. Before I started working here, I would come here quite a lot, either to go to the South Bank or to come to the National or, you know, you kind of walk up and down. And it is beautiful. It is a beautiful place. Um, and I feel really lucky to, you know, have an office that looks out at Somerset House. I love when I'm on my bike going over Waterloo Bridge and you just kind of have this... Oh gigantic amazing view kind of spreading out in all directions yeah and like so many landmarks like packed into one small yeah it does you've got the gherkin you've got some yeah. pools you've yeah. got i mean pick a landmark you can see it and then you see it and then you look the other way and there's house of parliament you you feel really privileged to like be right in the heart of it and also that there's always so much going on whether you do see buskers on uh the bridge over to charing cross station you know and they're amazing <laughs> or you're like you just i don't know there's constantly art up there's constantly something vibrant happening there's constantly like people drinking and having a good time and like enjoying the summer and it feels like 
people do come to the South Bank to enjoy the London summer. It feels like a place that is really great to come and hang out. My name is Nico Mahoy. I go by Magician on a Motorcycle. Uh, tour around the States on a motorcycle doing street shows. Uh, I'm a full-time street performer, yeah. Nico is interviewed by Nick, who is much better at bothering people on the street than I am. Nico is a busker, one of the oldest forms of public art there is. Buskers have been performing on the streets of our cities for centuries, carving out a trade from people passing by. The street performer you see on your way to work in the morning is one of the most visible forms of public art there is. So, we thought we'd talk to one. Could you tell us a bit about what makes for a successful street performance, you think? Uh, crowd control is the biggest part, is you have to establish the ambience of a theatre in a space that's not. Whatever your art is, is secondary to street. You need to get people to stand together, act together, clap together. Uh, so that's the number one thing that makes a good show. But deduced to three words, it's stop, stay, pay. You get people to stop their feet, get them to stay there, and get them to pay you is it in 15 letters, so. And what, um, made, what makes you do it? Why do you like street performance? Uh, the best and the worst part is the freedom. I perform where I want, when I want, uh, for who I want. It is not as easy as that, uh, necessarily, but I, I took to street to travel. My main goal was to have a travel trade. And now, after five years, I'm pretty confident you could strip me bare and put me anywhere in the world and it might take me a month but I'll get a plane ticket back to wherever I need to be. Nico's been a street performer all over the world so we asked him how easy is it to busk in different countries? In Europe the streets are older so they've had street performers longer. Um, in Europe and in parts of the northeast US they needed to turn horse carriages around. So there's a big giant square in the middle of the city to do that. It is culturally integrated, people know what you're doing, and if you're doing it full time, you gotta be decent enough to do it full time. So if the idea of giving based on how good it was, um, if that's not a concept in a culture, um, then you're not gonna do very well. You know, I know parts of the East uh, Asia and uh, some of the southeast, it's harder, but still doable. As an economic sign, street performers don't go where the economy's poor. So if you're in a place and you see a lot of street performers, that's a health indicator of the region. Um, coming from America, I've seen plenty of videos of people getting arrested while playing the Star Spangled Banner. Uh, so when you don't see street performers in America anymore, that means that it's no longer, like, there's no freedom left. So in places that are restrictive of public expression, like, you won't see street performers. But where it is free, we'll be there. But in terms of true entrepreneurship, there's no other form that's more direct and pure, in my opinion, than street. Our home, the South Bank, is full of buskers and public art of all kinds. 
In the summer, it's full of people walking along the riverside past landmarks like the London Eye, the Southbank Centre and Tate Modern. Our bar, the understudy, and our cafe, kitchen, spill out of our big concrete house towards the water. And in the afternoons and evenings, our neighbourhood is busy with people, which makes it the perfect place for a party. But that wasn't always the case. So the River Stage Festival came to me two years ago and the National Theatre had recently undergone its uh, redevelopment, its NT future, which kind of changed how the building was used by audiences. So what we now all know as understudy or kitchen used to be the bin store. So it was a space that was never used or utilised or, you know, audiences would not have known about the bin store for, for, for a fair <laughs> So point. you used to have been walking along the South Bank and you go, ah. Oh. Some the bin store, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they kind of changed that and made, I mean, amazing, amazing things with kitchen and understudy. And it's it that area now is such a vibrant kind of space. Like it's completely full all the time, you know, basically or every day during the week. And so we really wanted to utilise the space and make more of it and make it kind of more of a cultural space during the summer, particularly as uh, people who go to the understudy, some some go to the National Theatre and some have no idea that it is a bar attached to a theatre. And that's fine. That's great. You know, that's it's totally fine for people coming for different reasons. And so what we wanted to do is like give them a taste of actually what we do inside. Why is the National Theatre doing this? Why is it important to put out a stage out front for people to just encounter as they walk past? Well, I think it's it's always really I think it's I mean I work in theatre so it's it's always really important to me that culture culture um, and the arts should be accessible for everybody um, and I think the fact that the National Theatre puts on a free festival right outside its doors um, encouraging new younger audiences to kind of experience the kind of things that we put on our stages the kind of things that we make you know DJs that maybe people haven't experienced before is just a really exciting offering and you know it was wonderful last year seeing kind of audiences that you wouldn't normally see in this building outside enjoying uh enjoying all the free activities and the free experiences that that the National Theatre can present and put on and um you know, I feel silly asking you to explain why putting on a massive free party is a good idea because isn't it self-evidently a really good idea? Actually, that's true. You get to experience completely new things. That's what culture can bring to you. So we had, I'm going to bring an example from last year. This old lady came up to me at the end of the Drag Queen weekend, on the end of the Glories weekend, and she just said, I've had such a brilliant time. I've never experienced kind of, you know, um, this sort of, party atmosphere with these performers and she said she came on the Friday night by accident they were literally walking past the South Bank and she saw what was going on and then they literally came back every single day and she just had such a brilliant time and she literally said she was going to go to the glory to check it out and I was like this is wonderful we have MG Leonard coming to read Beetle Boy and again it's like the author of those wonderful books that have become like massive hits is coming to do a reading on the on the river stage and that's just completely wonderful and makes it you know other kids can kind of come and enjoy that maybe they haven't experienced that book before and it just gives you kind of um a moment of escapism in the middle of uh london on like a saturday afternoon and i think that's completely joyous there's something quite wonderful about bringing all of those different audiences together into the same space, right? Because often yeah. when we're programming art or making art or culture, you're often thinking about your audience, you're thinking about a very specific audience. Mm. But there's this also wonderful serendipity of people just walking past yeah. and encountering something that they wouldn't normally seek out on their own, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's I think that's the most joyous thing that when when you 
you get the audiences that you don't expect to get. You know, the people who who just happened across what we're doing outside the NT and then stay. And my favourite moment from, you know, is 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 when a dance starts and the audience is quite small and then it grows and it grows and it grows and like halfway through, like people who didn't mean to stop, you know, they were just going to Blackfriars. They're like crowded around the pizza van and the ice cream van and people are all just like staring, transfixed on these beautiful performers um, uh, with, you know, amazing lighting by Hugh Llewellyn. And it's, it's just a wonderful moment that you know that these people didn't mean to come here and they just happened across it and they will go off and they will talk about that and they'll have experienced it and that's that's a really special thing. It's a really special thing that you've had some sort of impact on that, that person's day. Can you remember a time in your life when you encountered like a piece of art or culture in the public space that you weren't expecting? Because it's often things like sculptures, right, but it can be performance art as well. Yeah. I remember one of the first times I came to London and I must have been going over Waterloo Bridge thinking about mm. it, going right past the National before I had anything to do with the place. Yeah. And I encountered uh, Anthony Gormley's... Oh, yeah, the statues. ...event the horizon, yeah. yeah, where he put statues on top of oh, loads beautiful. of buildings across the London skyline. And you noticed one and you, yeah. you thought that someone was going to commit suicide off the top of it and then you realised that there were these figures mm. on top of every building as far as you or I could see. Yeah. And it just gave me a really profound sense of like being in the city yeah and that there were so many things going on that I couldn't possibly comprehend Mm -hmm. and like I said it was one of the first times that I I think I came to London as an adult yeah yeah by myself and it really always kind of stayed with me that feeling Mm. yeah but it's it's it is amazing when you start to like notice the little things or notice things that you wouldn't normally notice and there's so much art everywhere i live near peckham and in east dulwich you kind of go around there's art there's beautiful paintings all over people's walls and there's this one street and it's on loads of houses this artist has just kind of done these these amazing pieces all down this street and it and it's just amazing how you can find that anywhere um and and it kind of it's it evokes conversations and and it makes people go and visit those places i don't know i think it really helps with community and i just think art and public space is just it's really good at uniting um communities in in certain areas and bringing people together i think that's what's really great about it the river stage festival has been running all summer taken over each weekend by a different cultural institution including home the art center in manchester When they came down to visit a couple of weeks ago, a lot of the acts they brought with them were DJs and bands. No surprise given how important music has been to Manchester's cultural identity over the last few decades. For a long while, the heart of the city's music scene was its legendary club, The Hacienda, famous for playing host to bands like New Order and The Smiths, and ushering in the rise of acid house music and rave. Dave Haslam, who you heard from at the start of the show, DJed at the Hacienda over 450 times. Before getting the party started for us here with a set on the river stage, I spoke to him about his life as a DJ and the importance of music to Manchester's public life. I became a DJ because uh, I was interested in live music, firstly, and uh, with some friends we I used to put on uh, gigs uh by bands at the time nobody else would put on gigs by so this is kind of 83 84 um and 
and we were putting on the gigs and we kind of realized we needed to entertain what few customers there were uh, before and after the live shows and I was designated man with a box of records and I literally just had to play before the bands and then after um, and I actually enjoyed that I enjoyed the discipline of trying to build an atmosphere uh, and so that when the band went on uh, they were given every chance of getting a good reaction and then I also like the challenge of playing music after the band to try and keep people in the venue and drinking and I enjoyed doing that and I got a few gigs at the Hacienda doing precisely the same thing uh, at the Hacienda and got signed up by the Hacienda in May 86 when a new management had come on board and decided that DJ oriented nights were not only the cheapest way of opening a club <laughs> rather than booking a de booking a live band and there's only one of you I want to ask you about performing actually I was going to come back to this later but I want to ask it now since you bring it up obviously we're a theatre and and we think about kind of performance all the time but DJing I'm really curious as to how much you as a person in the room is a factor in it versus you as like a delivery mechanism for for music well that's a good question uh and i, and I think um not every dj thinks about that but i do and i've become more aware of that the longer that i've dj'd i feel that first of all um you're not uh, you're not a neutral delivery mechanism i think you communicate your obviously you communicate your music taste which is a reflection of your personality but you also I think communicate your emotions in a lot of ways by what you play and how you play and if you program the music over you know two or three hours then in that time you know you will be expressing various kinds of emotion it won't be just uplifting 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 you know you will take people down you will take people into little different directions so i think that you you know you are quite active uh, as, as a delivery mechanism and the great thing for me was that in the 80s i was a resident dj week in and week out at various clubs including the hacienda and that means that every week your that negotiation can move on a step you they people have already got a angle on what you play and the kind of dj you are and you've already got an angle on the audience so a resident dj working week in and week out in a way you know is in a very privileged position i actually made me and the couple of other guys that uh, did the club with me dj'd every week we made the conscious decision to play music that brought girls onto the dance floor um and if if we put on a a record and girls left the dance floor and boys got on the dance floor we wrote it down we never played it again and we had a very we had a very clear idea that that it was about giving the cool girls of manchester a great night out mm. and we thought that if we do that then actually boys will come anyway um and uh why did you want to do that with your night? Was it because you felt that was an audience that wasn't being served? Exactly. I mean, and also, I mean, it was just girls, but it was also, it was it was a little bit more gay-oriented. It was really in a reaction against some of the heavy techno nights that were happening around the city in the early 90s that were getting a slightly more uh, male-dominated crowd. And they were a nice, you know, often a nice crowd, but we just kind of thought, well you know there's there's other demographics when you first got booked at the hacienda 
kind of what kind of time was that and what was Manchester as a city like at that time and what did the Hacienda as a club mean in Manchester at that time? Well, uh, I'm talking the middle of 1986. The Hacienda had been open almost exactly four years, primarily as a live venue. It wasn't hugely commercially successful. Well, it wasn't commercially successful, apart from three or four gigs a year, which uh, filled the club, you know, like the Smiths playing there or New Order playing there. Uh, But generally, it was a kind of club on the edge of town, literally and metaphorically, and uh, it was a club where if you felt like you wanted to get a taxi to go to the Hacienda, you'd get in the taxi and, and ask to go to the Hacienda and the taxi driver would not know where you were talking about because it was just so underused. And um, and and also DJing wasn't, you know, the big thing that it became uh, five, six, seven uh, and subsequent years later, you know. And there were more... I don't know, more people wanting to be barbers in Manchester than DJs in 1986. So it wasn't like it was a big deal being a DJ and it wasn't a big deal getting a a gig at the Hacienda necessarily, but it kind of was for me because I was a fanboy of Factory Records. Um, I'd been lucky enough to see Joy Division play three times. I'd seen early New Order gigs. They were soundtracking my life even then. I was 24. Um, And so to be DJing in a club that they owned, for me, was a big deal. What was it about Manchester at that time? Because there were these small scenes and you kind of, at the Hacienda, kind of worked to bring them together into, into, I guess, this kind of musical cultural monolith that Manchester sort of became at that time for many people. But what was it about Manchester as a city that, allowed it to have or to kind of grow that many really intense very rich music scenes what was it about the city at that time well i think this first of all i think the city had the city has always had a history of hedonism (laughs) i mean you know it's a city that was you know founded on you know the backs of the hard work of the working class in the 19th century who'd be working at the factories, you know, uh, 11, 12 hours a day and at weekends would go out and get steaming drunk, you know. And if you read Engels, you know, who obviously late, later on co-authored the Communist Manifesto, Engels spent a lot of time in Manchester <clears throat> in the 1840s and he writes about um, having to step over prostrate bodies of drunken Mancunians lying in the gutter um, on at the weekends, uh, mill hands who'd basically had too much to drink after a week of being exploited by the mill owners and the factory owners, and you know, and 140 years later, Manchester was in a way just the same. So there was that <laughs> that idea of that yeah. idea of hedonism, you know, and the need to just. Yeah, just to escape at weekends. Mm. And what happened um, as the Hacienda becomes this kind of uh, really strong, cultural, powerful force? How does that in turn change Manchester over the course of its life? Well, one of the things about the Hacienda was, as you probably know, it was in an old warehouse. Uh, I mean, this is just one of the things that it changed. And 
and and that whole all, all that that punk era and the post punk era into the mid eighties was all happening in a city that had suffered uh, a lot of job losses in the seventies that was then exacerbated by um the the policies of the Tory government under Thatcher. Uh, manufacturing industries were allow being allowed to die, factories were closing, <clears throat> warehouses were empty, um, and in a sense, the city hadn't got uh, its reason for existing any longer. Once the hacienda had uh, become a, a success, and you know our profile had, had risen, and there were you know a number of other clubs as well that were around at the at the end of the 80s but obviously we were the kind of the flagship club and we were the ones that were being written about in you know magazines from kind of newsweek in america to les on rock in in france and the broadsheets and the tabloids mm -hmm. and the music papers in england so we had a high profile manchester began to feel a, a, a sense of pride in what we were doing what we were doing was also feeding into the live music scene and into rock music and into bands like um, Happy Mondays and Stone Roses. Um, and suddenly the city kind of, in a way, reinvented itself just as a result of the music scene, you know, and, and, and a sign of that was, you know, it was dubbed Madchester. You know, the city had changed so much in the space of a few years that it wasn't recognizably Manchester anymore. And it kind of had to have a new name, you know, and, and the city kind of gone from that, you know, the kind of the darkness of, of Joy Division to the more uh, day glow, Happy Mondays, and, you know, from the from the kind of, you know, Smith's uh, Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now to, you know, rave music. And, and that change, was a change that wasn't only in music but it was in culture it was in fashion and it was also in the feeling on the streets of the city as well so it was a psychological change so the city began in a way to feel a sense of purpose again and that was achieved really through the music scene live music venues and nightclubs are as important in the story of towns and cities as the local factory or the local cathedral that's what i kind of hold on to that notion of of you know the primary real experience when you're just faced with something unfolding or some creation uh and you just it just hits you on a human level um you, you know there's there's, there's nothing more mind-blowing Now, from cities to countries. In 2016, the visual artist Jeremy Della created an artwork to commemorate the Battle of the Somme. The piece was called We're Here Because We're Here, and it took place all over the country. Young men dressed as soldiers from the First World War began appearing in public spaces, and when people asked them what they were doing there, they'd say nothing and hand over a card with the name of a man who died in the Somme. The piece was top secret and involved thousands of participants. We wanted to ask Jeremy, how on earth do they pull it off? And how do you make a piece of performance work on a national scale? The organisation 1418 Now, uh, they were trying to work out how would you commemorate this 
disaster, basically, this tragedy um, nationally. And they asked me if I had any ideas, and I thought about it. And then about a week later, I just thought, I know what I would like to see. I don't know whether I'm going to be able to do this, but I'd like I would like to see human beings commemorate it, and uh, maybe being soldiers and appearing and disappearing around the country on that day with this uh, this presence, basically, and intervening in daily life in Britain. And I, I wrote to them. I wrote an email saying, "Look, I think this is what we could do." And they said, "Yes, let's try and do it." That was three years before we did it. Oh wow! So quite a long lead-up time. It was a long gestation, yes. And how much did the idea change over that time since you first I, had it? To be honest, I would say it changed maybe two or three percent. Most of the ideas I have, or a lot of them, I have an, a vision. That sounds a bit religious. <laughs> I have an idea. I have an, an image of how something could be. And on the whole, I try and keep it as close to that because usually that's the best version of it. And we had around 2,000 people working on it at any one time, especially towards the end, of which about 1,500 or so were participants, performers, you could call them, or participants on the day. And then we had a support groups, obviously, of organisation, stage management, costume, all those things, um, which was like another three, 400 people, I imagine. Mm. And it was national. Because the Somme itself is a national story, it's a national tragedy, it had to be in go to most parts of the UK. When I say most parts, I don't mean every village or every town, but it had to it had to be throughout the country in all the four uh, parts of Britain, Northern Ireland, Wales, Scotland, and England, and geographically had to be spread out as much as we could. And were there any particular kinds of spaces that you were keen to, to introduce these people into i'm just i remember seeing them at waterloo station as i was coming into work in yeah, the morning you would have done yes were you thinking about sort of you're a visual artist like how this would look how this Absolutely. Supposed to be, were there certain kinds of places you were particularly keen to have these characters in? i was very keen for them to be in contemporary britain so visually it would look strange to see someone in World War One uniform in a shopping centre in Westfield, for example. Mm. Just in a way to show how Britain is unrecognisable from 100 years ago. But yes, they had to intervene in contemporary life. So we, we avoided heritage Britain. Mm. We avoided c castles and churches and anything that actually spoke of war. Mm. We went to places that had nothing to do with war. It had to look strange and out of place. They had to look out of place and odd and lost almost. You said you wanted it to look strange and out of place mm. that's presumably because you wanted to create a certain kind of feeling in the people who were encountering it yes kind of visual uncertainty a, sh a shock even maybe a surprise something that wasn't going to be expected we didn't announce the this mm. event and that might explain why the public well some members of the public got very emotional over it um, because they weren't expecting it do you remember any particular reactions? Well, I didn't see any because I was sort of hiding that day. But I think a lot of people, <laughs> um, a lot of the participants have people crying. And I think it was a, for a lot of people, it was a kind of cathartic moment after, you know, this came a week after the EU referendum results. And it was, a, you know, it was a very stressful time in British public life with a lot of the infighting that went on after the result. And the country did seem very fractured and angry with itself. I mean, it still does, but... It was particularly raw, and I think people were 
very annoyed with politicians and with the political system. And this actually spoke of something bigger than the contemporary politics of the day. How much do you work with theatres, given that you work so often with people? I don't work very much with theatres. I mean, this last year's piece was really the only time I've really properly worked with theatres. And I worked with a lot of theatres on a, on a big mm. scale. So I went in at the deep end in a way, but it was really, it was a really great experience. I really like the way they work and their very positive attitude to things, and also their organisational skills. So I hope there'll be future things happening with theatres. Mm. I want to talk about the fact that this was involving thousands of people, mm. yet it was really important that it was a secret. Mm. How do you keep a secret that big? I think people are invested in the work and they know that the work has an importance and has a, a, a gravity to it. They will keep the secret. I met a lot of them. I went around the country in the build-up and spoke to groups of people explaining why I was doing it, what I was, ex what I was hoping for on the day and also why it should be a secret. Because if it isn't a secret and it, this gets out, then actually it won't be as interesting for you as a performer your day will be much more interesting when people see you without knowing that they're going to see this and you'll get these much more interesting reactions and it'll be much more effective. And for that reason alone, I think they probably felt, well, they shouldn't tell anyone because it's just a big national secret, like a battle is. You don't want to tell someone when you're going to invade somewhere, thing, mm. invade a country or start a battle. You, the, the element of surprise is very important. When you're putting a piece of art in public... Mm like a big piece of public art, as you've done many times in your career. Are there any kind of key elements that you think have to be there in order to make it work? It has to be a good idea. That's the first element. Hmm. Uh, it has to be a good idea, and it has to find its audience. And you have to, in a way, you have to be clear about what you want in yourself and make be able to communicate that to the participants. And then just let the public do the rest, really. But the idea is the most important thing. And, and you know, this idea was actually a very simple idea, really. It's very complicated to do it, but it's you can understand that idea in five seconds. You use people a lot in your work. Yes. Why? Because I am quite good with people, and I'm quite bad with paint and <laughs> making things. And it's interesting making work that ne not necessarily has a sort of an end product that is an object or a painting or whatever. Mm. The end product is the what is the performance or the thing that happens, and uh, I quite like that. When you were asked to make something for the Manchester Festival, was it that was quite recently, wasn't it? The, that was that two weeks ago. I basically had an idea, and I gave the organisers of the festival an idea. I said, "Look, this is, this is I can't do this because I'm too busy, but." why don't you do something like this or this kind of thing? And I basically handed the idea to them with a list of participants I thought could be quite good for this thing. Mm. And they basically ran with it and did, did this event, which I went to go and see. I did a really good job of it. And it was basically a, a catwalk in the middle of the town with people walking along it who'd done stuff in the town, mm. all different kinds of people with all different kinds of experiences. And they were accompanied by music and... There was information about them on big screens. It was a big production, but there were some very nice moments. There was a blind date on it, for example. <laughs> this guy walked on. He had no idea who he was meeting. 
and and he just stood on the, on this catwalk and other people walking up and down who had other things to do and then about 10 minutes later up comes his date who he's never met before she's never cl- seen him he's never seen her and they walk together on th- into the middle of the catwalk and everyone's cheering them it was a really nice moment it's really sweet and then there's other elements that were kind of less sweet people had actually really quite distressing stories but they wanted to people to see them and know who they were and so on mm. so it was a real mix Obviously, most of the time people seek out art by going into spaces where art lives, whether that's theatres or museums or galleries yes. or whatever. What's the benefit of putting art out in public spaces? Well, you can't avoid it in a public space. And you f- you reach the people that don't necessarily go to museums or galleries, which is still, I imagine, I hate to say it, the majority of the population. Also, public art, well, like a piece like I did, uh, is paid for by the public it's paid for by taxpayers and so for me it's only right that people that paid for it have an opportunity to see it and it's not hidden away that's our show for today thank you all so much for listening this weekend is the very last few days of the River Stage Festival. It's on until Bank Holiday Monday, so if you're in London, anywhere near the South Bank, come check us out. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you can let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever fine podcasts are found, or by sending us a tweet with the hashtag NTPodcast. Keep up with all of our latest news by following us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and everywhere else. Just search for us at National Theatre. This episode was produced and edited by Emma Reedy and was presented and co-produced by me, Sam Sedgman, with help from our social content editor, Nick Mulligan. Our executive producer was Kate Moore and our music was by Alex Painter. A massive thank you to our contributors this week, Fran Miller, Nico Mahoy, Dave Haslam and Jeremy Della. We'll be back in a fortnight with our next show and until then, goodbye. Goodbye.